Hi, I'm Baron Brebner, and today on Joint Effort, we have Dr. David Vitito. Dr. Vitito is an expert in joint replacement and in revision joint replacement. Um, David, when I think of you and think about what you might be doing in your free time, I think of like horses and hunting. Is that kind of what you like to do, or what do you like to do when you're not at the office? Yeah, I like to be outside. Uh, we have a couple horses and like to go camping and trail riding. And then I grew up hunting and fishing, so that's been uh, something I've enjoyed pursuing. Do you um, like do any kind of extreme hunting, you know, like things where you bring your own pack with you and you're like out for a week, just like in the wilderness or anything like that? Or Not at this point, Have really. Have some people doing that though? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Like for elk and stuff like that? Yeah, for sure. It's uh, a little harder to sleep on the ground for me at this point in my life, so... <laughs> I'm a little more comfortable in a bed. Gotcha. Um, does your wife also hunt with you, or you no? Just, you just do that stuff on your own. Yeah, with guys? yeah, with the guys. Yep. Yeah, and you grew up in um, South Central Iowa, right? Yes, Atumwa. Okay. Um, and that was part of growing up was doing that hunting with your family. And yeah, family cool. and friends. Yeah. yeah. Um, when uh, when you do the hunting and stuff like that what's your kind of favorite i mean do you do everything like from bow hunting to pistol to shotgun to rifle or what do you yeah do? i've done a bunch of things over the years i really enjoy archery okay at this point so that's the lion's share of uh how i hunt these days i, I get a lot of uh sorry my no pager's problem. going off i get a lot of uh people who ask me for crossbow permits and stuff like that Is yeah that something you C2 or? Yeah, definitely. If um, you can't pull back the Yeah, a lot bow. of people with upper extremity disabilities are eligible for a crossbow permit. Okay. So, yeah, it's a great way to allow people with disabilities to be outside and yeah. to pursue that. Yeah. I, I'm not a hunter. I fish a little bit, but I, I do see the appeal in getting out there and yeah. in nature and just doing something right. away, away from your pager. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, um can you tell me about your orthopedic and medical training and background there? Yeah, I uh, I went to medical school at the University of Iowa and then uh, did my orthopedic residency in Northeast Ohio in Akron. And then from there, I did a fellowship in adult hip and knee reconstruction in Boston. Okay. Um, what was the program in Boston? Uh, the Mass General Harvard program. Okay. And so... I was talking with you and Devin Getz last night, and uh, kind of apropos of our conversation here, Devin said that, uh, did Devin do the same fellowship he as did. you? He did, yes. Okay, so yeah. um, he said that Bill Harris had a, a quote, do you remember what he was talking about there? A quote about orthopedics and kind of yeah. maybe not getting too into the new stuff right away. Right. What he he was, uh, you know, one of the, I guess the grandfathers of hip replacement in North America and we were pretty fortunate to train under him but he he was he always told us to to use what's what works and not what's necessarily new mm -hmm. um, and that's kind of been valuable advice just with new technology thing we're always there's always a new widget that mm -hmm. we're mm -hmm. introduced to in orthopedic surgery and his point was just to be data-driven and uh, do what's right for your patient. Mm -hmm. uh, well, that's exactly, I think, what we're going to talk about today is some of the data behind some of the things that are truth and 
misconceptions about orthopedic surgery and joint replacement and um, some of the fads that may come and go. Um, I had a mentor at Mayo Clinic who was similar to that, Dr. Shives, who said he liked to always stay one fad behind, you know, so he just kind of see how other people did with it and, right. and check the research and then decide, you know, not be on the exact cutting edge of everything because some things work and some things don't work in, yeah. in orthopedics, just like in all medicine. So today we'll talk about some of those myths and misconceptions and uh, some data. I chose you for this topic because I've known you for a long time. Uh, I've known you for 13 years and uh, you're a no-nonsense guy and you kind of tell it like it is and you look at the data. So that's why I wanted to have you on for this uh, particular topic. Um, more and more in our medical life and in our uh, clinics, patients are looking at the internet and, and uh, being influenced by ads and things like that and you know testimonials on um, different companies' websites and things like that and coming in to kind of tell you what they think about stuff. How do you deal with the, you know, the informed uh, patient is great, but how do you deal with the internet advertisement that might be influencing people to ask for certain things in your practice? Yeah, it's, uh, it is really common anymore. There's a lot of direct-to-consumer advertising um, that we didn't used to have just with uh, the internet and so forth. And I think it's good that patients are engaged in their problem and that they're interested to research different treatments, et cetera. But it's good to have those discussions in the clinic if a person sees something. And I encourage them, actually, if they see something or hear of something that they have questions about, to ask us and we'll try to help them navigate all the information that's out there. So most of them are appreciative, and at the end of a discussion, they sort of get what, why we're recommending what we're recommending for mm -hmm. them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's important to know that, uh, for the patients to know that, you know, their care and their, their um, getting better is really all that we think about in, in, in their interest is right. what we think about it. Uh, whereas, you know, some of the things that are advertised on the internet well, they really are advertised. You know, it's a it's right. an ad, yeah, and um, it's a pretty sophisticated system of ads. So, got to be careful with yeah. that. Um, so, some of the topics that I want to talk about are, are um, kind of joint replacement. Some are arthritis related. One thing I want to talk to you about is uh, surgery for meniscus tears. Okay, yeah. um, there have been a lot of studies, one way or another, about what's the best thing for a meniscus tear. And in this case, I'm not talking about. Uh, an 18 year old who tears their knee meniscus playing football. I'm talking about a 45 or 75 year old person who has uh, what we call a degenerative meniscus tear, which is kind of happens over time, plus maybe some arthritis. What do you think the best treatment based on data is for those things? Yeah, I think that's a very common scenario. I mean, every day in the clinic, we'll see a few people with uh, that issue where they've got a meniscus tear and they may have some arthritis too. I think some of those patients can benefit from arthroscopic treatment of their meniscal tear, but it's less predictable than ideal compared to a younger person that may have a pristine joint in a meniscus or ligament injury. So that's part of the discussion, I think, in terms of what treatment might be best. Mm -hmm. I think it depends on you know, the severity of arthritis, obviously. Someone who has more advanced degenerative disease and a meniscal tear, they're unlikely to benefit from 
an arthroscopic uh, operation where if on the other hand a person has some mild degenerative disease it it may be a reasonable consideration but again it's a little less predictable than ideal yeah I uh, it's a hard conversation when somebody comes in with a report from their a family doctor that says you have a meniscus tear and they really focus on that because that's the easy thing to say somebody oh they yeah. get a meniscus tear go see the orthopedic surgeon but they don't talk about all the other things that we go through right you know the cartilage damage and yeah, fluid sure. in the knee and bone marrow edema things like that so i think the worst ones are people who have severe degenerative disease that are that have an mri done before they see us and they're told that you have a meniscus tear and they count come in maybe with a preconceived notion that they have a very straightforward, simple problem, and they don't. Right. You know, those definitely. are those are the kind of the hardest ones yeah. to. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And that can take some time to talk to them about the role of physical therapy and cortisone injections and those things right. and weight loss, of yeah. course, in a lot of people. Yeah. So um, I think the take home on that is that uh, not every meniscus tear needs a a surgery to make you feel better and not right. every every meniscus tear will feel better with surgery um now let's segue into uh, injections for arthritis um evidence-based stuff i want to hear about so cortisone evidence-based treatment for knee arthritis what do you think about that yeah so cortisone or steroid injections for large joint arthritis have been around for a long time uh, back when we were in training uh, that's one of the staples I think for the treatment of arthritis and there's there is data to support that mm-hmm. treatment and I think it's safe to do as long as it's not done overly frequently mm-hmm. so we have a lot of patients we'll see periodically, maybe a couple times a year, and do joint injections. And if that is effective, if it works well for them, it's a safe treatment. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I think the important part of that is probably it's safe, and there has been there have been studies that show it's better than placebo for yeah. knee pain. Yeah. How about um, gel injections in your practice and evidence about gel injections? Yeah. That means like visco supplement injections. Right. Right. So yeah, those have actually been around for a long time too they were when i was in training it was a relatively new treatment for arthritis and we still do those i i they don't work for everybody mm-hmm. and the studies you know the data shows that they're probably as effective as a steroid injection anecdotally in my practice, I've found that in the patients that that does work for, they tend to last longer than a steroid injection, but it's not 100% effective. Mm-hmm. How about evidence on various types of uh, what are called stem cell injections, but they aren't stem cells. Uh, we do them here at DMOS for certain pathologies, but but stem cells for arthritis in the knee and hip yeah what's the evidence on that yeah so the stem cells are the new kids on the block and uh, there's not any good real scientific data to indicate that they regenerate tissue or cartilage at this point anecdotally there are some patients that do have symptomatic relief with those injections the 
biggest downside is the cost with them and uh, insurance at this point in time does usually not cover it. Mm-hmm. So, and there are some other pathologies that, you know, can be treated with stem cell or PRP injections. Definitely. Certain tendon problems and so forth. I think there may be a, a good role for them in that setting. With arthritis, I think it's, we need to wait for the data. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's pretty expensive also. Yeah, it is, now. yeah. Um, on a different tack, uh, does running, you know, some people say, I've been a runner all my life and this is what happened to me, but does running cause arthritis in the knees? Yeah, that's a really common question. And there there have been a few studies regarding that over the years. Some of them were even done at the University of Iowa. And high impact exercise does not appear to be a causative factor for hip or knee arthritis. I have a lot of patients with that have hip or knee arthritis that enjoy running and they oftentimes ask, you know, if they should stop running or what should they do and I tell them to base that on their symptoms. If they're able, if they enjoy running, if that's important to them and they're able to do it, I don't think that's going to accelerate their degenerative disease. And so I tell them to go ahead. It it may there may come a time when you're not comfortable doing it sure yeah so but uh but there's not any causative relationship between high impact sports yeah that's what i've understood too yeah sports injuries you know that's another that's another kettle of fish but uh, i mean post-traumatic arthritis is a definite from an, like an ACL tear, yeah, things yeah. like that, yeah, yeah but ACL not just regular or, running or a fracture, yeah. but yeah, regular yeah. running, no, yeah. Um, you know, I do uh, quite a few partial knee replacements. I like to use a robot for that. Just I think it is more accurate for the partial knee replacement. Really, everything looks, you know, how I want it to look afterwards. We can, you know, make it just like I like it. Now, you don't use robots for anything. Uh, research based is uh, probably on your side with that. Can you tell me more about? why you don't use a robot, why you, I mean, some of the claims that maybe are made about robots and why they aren't quite true. Yeah, so robotics. Or navigation. Yeah, robotics and navigation, uh, they're sort of a work in progress. They're, again, even back 25 years ago when I was in training, there was interest from orthopedic surgeons in robotics for uh, joint replacement and other applications. And it's come a long way, obviously, uh, since that time. Currently, I think that there does appear to be some data that suggests robotics are beneficial in certain surgeries. For example, partial knee replacements. For total knee replacements, total hip replacements, the studies to date don't show any benefit from that. Mm Um, but there's a lot of marketing also that kind of yeah. occurs from the manufacturers, et cetera. Yeah, we're talking about like a million-dollar investment for a hospital sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. And with healthcare costs, we have to be cognizant about costs. But if there's a benefit to the patient, yeah. there's a, you know, it's worth an, a cost. One of the good things and the bad things about what we do is that 
you know, without robotics and things like that, we have excellent results. People, right. you know, living 20, 30 years with a joint yeah. replacement, we have to show that we're going to make it better. And that's pretty hard to do when you're, when you're, you know, for a test, when a test takes two weeks and you know the answer or a drug test, that's yeah. one thing. But if you're studying people for longitudinally for 30, 40 years, right. it's really hard to prove things. Yeah. It's a good problem to have. I mean, yeah. fortunately, our outcomes with joint replacement are so good. Uh, it's hard to show improvement, and it takes time, and yeah. it takes uh, science, yeah. but uh, but we're always looking to be better, too. Uh, well, we've got a lot to talk about still, so we might run over our time if you're okay with that. Yeah. All right. Um, we both do anterior hip replacements yep. and also other kinds of hip replacements, mm-hmm. and um, there are some good things about it. How much of an anterior hip replacement, how much do you think the hype around anterior hip replacement is hype versus it's better? For your patient outcomes yeah i think uh hip replacement is it's one of the best uh operations in any surgical field it's been done for 60 years and there are various surgical approaches that can be done for hip replacement and the data again shows that every approach works really well um after a period of six to eight weeks, the data shows that there's not a big difference, no matter what surgical approach was used. The anterior approach in my practice, and I think the data reflects this, has an advantage in that the first few weeks of a patient's recovery is a little quicker and a little easier on them. Mm-hmm. So it's. I think it's been a, a great tool to have. Not every patient's a great candidate for it, but right. I think people that are good candidates uh, they bounce back very quickly. They do really well. Yeah. 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 Um, how about partial knee replacements? I don't. I don't do a lot. I probably do four. I probably do one for every four or five total knee replacements. I yeah. do, but I really like them. I think the patients like them. Why do some people seem to? Like in England, there might be people who do it for everybody. And here there's yeah. some people who never, ever do it and think it's a terrible idea. What's the yeah. truth for a partial knee replacement? Well, I think the truth is that it's it's a really good operation if it's done in the right patient. And uh, the data reflects that. The outcomes for partial joint replacements are really good, even beyond 20 years. But they're, it's important to select the right patient. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, when I'm having a discussion with a patient about surgical treatment for their knee arthritis, I want to try to do what I think is going to give them the best outcome in the long run. And in certain patients, a partial joint replacement is a great option. And in others, it's not. And you just have to, I think, uh, have that discussion and make yeah. the decision what you think is going to work best. Yeah. Um, I've got a few other little kind of uh, random tidbits too that it may be something uh, patients or uh, listeners aren't interested in, but it may be something they might find interesting historically. Um, your quick co- take on uh, the advertisement for the ladies' knee or the women's knee. Oh, right. From a while ago. Yeah. Uh, can you tell what that was trying to address and, you know, if other companies have come out with it, if, if there are really men's and women's knees out there that, that people need to 
look for? Or? Yeah, so just uh, a little background information for people who may not be aware, but probably, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago or so, there was an implant manufacturer that came out with a, came out with a so-called gender-specific knee. And it was similar in geometry to the typical knee implant, but it was a little bit more narrow in the medial to lateral direction. And it was the premise for the idea was based on a large study of CT scans of uh, men and women's knees. And it was sort of a marketing effort, I think, at that time. But since then, it's interesting because a lot of the companies now have uh, their knee implants that come in a standard width and then a narrow width. Right. Because every femur is a little bit different. And it's really, I think, been a helpful tool. The uh, implants that we use predominantly now have that option. And it's, it's just really nice to help get that joint replacement as close to the patient's normal anatomy yeah, as you can. I 100% agree. I switched yeah. from a, one brand, you know, to another brand just because they had more sizes to yeah. fit more people. Right. Um, but it, it's not necessarily gender specific, but it's specific, patient specific. Exactly. You know, a yeah. lot more options now than we yeah. used to have. Um, how about uh, the kneecap? Sometimes we resurface it and some people don't resurface it. Why? What's the evidence behind that? And this is the, the patella. Yeah, right. So kind of a mixed bag. There are, there are some surgeons that have reported data that would suggest you don't ever need to resurface a kneecap. And others contradict that. And it's kind of a regional uh, practice, I think. There are certain areas of the country where patellar resurfacing is the sort of the standard of care and other regions where it's not necessarily. In our area, I think 99% of the surgeries done in our area in Iowa have resurfaced patellas. Mm -hmm. the, the problem that led to the controversy was, I mean, years ago with total knee replacement, there was a high percentage of problems with the kneecap and that was in hindsight due to the design characteristics of the joint replacements back then where with our current knee replacements the incidence of problems with the patella if it's been resurfaced are just really really low mm -hmm. so I in my practice I resurface all of them mm -hmm. okay um, what do you see, you know, kind of to wrap up, what do you see or are you excited about anything in particular in the next few years of changing in our in our total hip and knee world or things pretty much as optimized as they're going to be for the next 15 years? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, uh, like I say, the outcomes at this point are really good. Mm -hmm. But orthopedics is an innovative, really bright community of surgeons and I think things are going to continue to get even better. Mm -hmm. Well, it's been great talking to you. I wish yeah. we had another hour or two hours to talk yeah, about right this on. stuff. There, we got so many topics to talk about, but yeah. I appreciate you coming on and joining yeah, effort. Yeah, yeah, thank you.